Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heard It Here podcast, a production of the W.D. Horde & Sons Company. I'm Caitlin Allen, one of the editors here at Horde's Dairyman, and we are pleased to be bringing you an episode on a very newsworthy topic as of late, and that is early onset muscle weakness, or what you may have heard previously referred to as calf recumbency. This is a very new genetic condition the dairy industry has been learning about over the last few months, and today we will dive into what it is, how it occurs, and what dairy farmers need to know about it for their farm. We thank Phoenix Bio for sponsoring this episode of the Herd It Here podcast. Are you looking for a way to improve your herd's genetics? Look no further than Phoenix Bio. Their $10 tests are easy to understand and can help you make informed decisions about your herd. To learn more about Phoenix Bio, visit their website at phoenixbio.com. That's F-E-A-N-I-X-B-I-O.com. Phoenix Bio, simple, easy, and affordable genetic testing. Now I'm happy to welcome on our guest for this episode. He is no stranger to the readers of Horde's Dairyman as a regular contributor to our artificial breeding column. And in fact, he wrote about this very condition, early onset muscle weakness, way back in our February issue. Because Chad Deckow, an associate professor of dairy cattle genetics at Penn State, is also one of the researchers who has worked on identifying this condition. We're lucky to have him with us, and Chad, thanks for joining to share some more insight on this topic. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here, and it's always fun to talk about the newest things that are going on in the dairy genetics world. Absolutely. So to start off, let's first back up to a 10,000-foot view for the folks who maybe haven't heard about this condition or maybe who have seen the name but aren't quite sure what it's about yet. What does it look like when an animal has early onset muscle weakness? So the, the main hallmark of this appears to be that calves are not able to stand up. So what's unusual is that the calves otherwise appear pretty healthy. They, they eat well, they don't have a temperature, they're, they're healthy, they just can't stand up. And, uh, and usually it occurs after they're born onward occasionally there are a few calves that might stand up for a little bit for a, a few days maybe even and then they they get down and then they never get back up and there are some calves that seem to recover a little bit and so it's a little bit different than a lot of other conditions where there's this very clear if you get this condition you have a stillborn calf for instance and with these deformities. In this case it's a little bit more varied what we get and so that that makes it a little bit trickier but the the main hallmark is that these calves appear perfectly normal except for the fact that they just can't stand. That's certainly a scary condition for dairy farmers to <laughs> see and experience in their animals. Um, I thought it was really interesting when you wrote about this condition about how it was really dairy farmers who helped discover this condition um, can you tell us a little bit about that process and then how you as a geneticist got brought into it? Like why, why was a genetic condition suspected in this? Yeah, so a farm was working with their veterinarians. They had a group of calves that uh, were affected by this. And so they had, uh, a lot of the calves had to be euthanized, unfortunately. They had performed some necropsies and they just couldn't find anything wrong. They sent tissues to their vet hospital, which was the Cornell Vet Hospital, and they 
couldn't identify anything. And so after they kind of eliminated everything that the vets could think of in terms of metabolic disorders and so forth, what was left was a potential genetic condition. And it actually was another Hordes-Derimarn article that I had written about cholesterol deficiency that the veterinarians had read and, and they wondered, well, could it be something like that? And of course, we have very good genetic tests for cholesterol deficiency and the calves have been tested for their cholesterol levels and those were normal. So we knew it wasn't that, but at that point it was like, well, it, it sounds like something that could be. I hadn't heard of this being a problem from any others, but go ahead, send me a, a sample. I'll put it in my freezer and we'll see if anybody else has this problem and then if we do maybe we can start to track it down and so at that point we started asking around a little bit to, for other folks to see if they had had anything like that that they had observed and most people hadn't but a couple key farms had and in one particular case especially it was they had done a lot of IVF with one specific bull and with a couple different cows and they'd had quite a bit of this and we're quite concerned about it and so at that point we had enough samples where we we were able to begin to do a, a more formal analysis to try to identify uh, is this really a genetic condition and if so what's causing it sure and what kind of where do you, where do you even start when you're looking at something like that yeah so the main thing was what we needed were DNA samples from two groups of animals. We needed DNA from affected calves, and we had, I think, 18 initially that we started with. And then it's also equally important to get DNA samples from their relatives so that we can identify, that are normal, so that we can identify what parts of the genome are different. And so uh, we were able to do that, and then the first step in the process was to just do genotyping. And so this would be familiar to a lot of farms when they, they take a DNA sample, either an ear punch or a blood sample or a hair sample, and they send that into a company to do genotyping. That's basically where we started. Only in this case, we weren't worried about genomic PTAs. We just wanted the actual DNA marker results. So we had about 130,000 DNA markers that were tested. And so then the first step in that process is that you start to look for regions of the genome that are different between the two. And and we were able to locate it on chromosome 16. There was a very clear difference um, in a region of about 2 million base pairs. Then we had to go hunting for within those 2 million DNA bases what was specifically different that could be causing this. But that was the first step, just genotyping and identifying a general region where it occurred. Sure. And... Um in your article, you talked a little bit about incomplete penetrance, which was a term I had not heard before. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how that kind of complicated what you were working on? Yeah. So we had some evidence that this was not uh, quite as simple as a lot of other genetic recessives. So, for example, if we take a red and white Holstein and we made it to a red and white Holstein, 100% of the time we're going to get a red and white Holstein. In this particular case, a, an equivalent for incomplete penetrance would mean that we made a red and white Holstein to a red and white Holstein, and 80% of the time we get a red and white Holstein, and 20% of the time we get a black and white Holstein. 
And so basically incomplete penetrance means that you have the genetics that underlie the condition, but for some reason not everybody expresses it. And we don't know why this happens. Uh, we know that similar conditions in humans also have the same incomplete penetrance type of manifestation where you have family members whose gen genetics are identical but one has a, a muscle issue and their brother or their sibling that has the same genetics does not and so we there's lots of potential explanations one potential explanation is that there's another gene involved somewhere and that this gene is interacting with that gene in order in order to cause this condition we've looked hard but we have not found any evidence of of another genes involvement mm. at this point now maybe when we get enough animals genotyped and so forth maybe we'll be able to explore that a little bit more fully and a little bit deeper but at this point we we don't see evidence that there's another gene involved. It could be something that interacts with the environment. Uh, some of these conditions, for instance, are associated with an animal's or a person's potassium levels. So maybe a potassium deficiency in the dam's diet during gestation, a key point in gestation helps to enable this. Uh, we've just, that's completely speculative. The bottom line is we don't know why some get it and why some don't. And so we just turn that incomplete penetrance because it's not fully, by penetrant we mean it doesn't have 100% of uh, the effect 100% of the time. It's almost kind of like a epigenetic effect a little bit? I don't know if it's epigenetic. Uh, it could be, but uh, I, I, we've not seen evidence of that. We also speculated that because a lot of these animals that we were first working with were the result of IVF matings, that something like IVF could exaggerate the, or, or increase the, the likelihood of the condition manifesting. Uh, but, with, but with that said, we've got in particular one bull, he has IVF daughters, he has artificial insemination daughters, and he even has a natural service daughter that was affected. So that is not the only thing that sets this condition off, but it, it could play a role. The challenge is that the animals that were brought to our attention tended to be a little bit more valuable animals because they were through IVF, and so the farmers were more concerned about those animals that they had invested in from a genetic standpoint. So, it, so IVF probably has nothing to do with it, but it's a possibility. We just don't know at this point. Very interesting, yeah. You talked a little bit about you kind of narrow it down to a gene that appears to help make calcium channels in skeletal mm -hmm. muscles, right? How does that result in the symptoms we see in these calves that you talked about? Yeah, so this gets a little bit outside my area of expertise because I'm not a muscle physiologist. But the bottom line is that for a muscle to contract, there has to be calcium that enters a specific part of the muscle and that is done through a calcium channel that is opened when there's a, a signal for that to open. And so what happens in this particular case is you have a, a calcium channel that's, that's because of this mutation is not formed correctly. So when that happens, that impedes entry of calcium into the muscle and prevents contractions from taking place. 
What's interesting about calcium channels is there's there are multiple pores in these channels and so forth, and, and this would affect one part of the channel but not other parts. So that's another reason why it might be incompletely penetrant is that you do have normal pores, but then you have some mutated pores as well. So, so it would allow it to, uh, in some instances, a, the animal doesn't appear to be affected, obviously, whereas in others, calf can't stand up. In the calves that you've seen this in, is this a front leg condition, back leg, just entirely, or is there any any trend in that area? It seems to be all their legs. They don't seem to be able to stand up at all. Sure. You talked a little bit about this, but this is something that calves can develop at birth a few days or weeks after, is that right? Yeah, I th most of them, it's in the first couple weeks of life. And, okay. and most of them, it's at birth. They never really stand up. There are some, there were some calves that, uh, with one of the farms that we worked with, couldn't stand up for, say, 24 hours. And then, and then they got up mm -hmm. and, in some cases, recovered after that. In other cases, the calf was okay for a week, and then it went back down again and then did not get up again. So it's a little bit varied as far as that goes. But it's not something, I've seen no evidence that this is something that's going to develop after the calf is a month or two old, for instance. I think if, after those first few weeks of life, I think it's unlikely that all of a sudden this is going to manifest. Now, that, that may, I may be wrong about that, but to our experience so far is that this is something that will show up within the first couple of weeks of that calf's life. Sure, sure. What do we know about how common this is in the Holstein breed? So there's been a lot of genetic testing now, and it, it looks like the carrier, the frequency of carriers is about, say, 5% or so. So uh, and in terms of genetic theory, because you have to get two copies of this, at least all the evidence thus far says that you have to get two copies of this gene in order to have this condition manifest. So that would result in about, say, two to three out of every 1,000 calves that just by random chance we would expect to have be homozygous for this condition. And then of those two to three, probably one to two will actually have the condition itself and the others you, you'll never know because they, they appear completely normal. Uh, but what happens is that it occurs in some families more than others mm -hmm. so it's not uh, not going to be evenly distributed among farms. Most farms will never see it or they'll see it very rarely. Other farms will just happen to have used a bull that was a carrier and, and unfortunately they'll end up with a, a pocket of calves that have this. And in fact, that's why it was brought to my attention. It wasn't because somebody had one calf that couldn't stand up. It was because they had several calves that couldn't stand up. And so some farms, unfortunately, they get they get hit with it just by random chance having used bulls that, that carried it, and other farms will never see it. Sure, sure. Are there, if this happens on your farm, you're obviously concerned about it, are there haplotype tests that are available to use this or um, other information or uh, what are their mating decisions or considerations that farmers should make to help avoid this condition? Yes, we do now have a genetic test available to test for this. Now, 
there are two different, for a lot of our genetic tests conditions, there are two types of tests that we can do. One is that we can go in and we can test the exact mutation and gives us an exact answer. And that is now available for this condition and there are a, a few different companies including our sponsor which has this test available. The second type of test that we see for cholesterol deficiency in BLAD and CVM and, and the haplotypes that affect fertility aren't necessarily testing that exact mutation but they're looking at DNA markers in the general region where that occurs. This is a, has been a little bit tricky because there are lots of animals that have this particular chunk of the genome inherited way back from Ivanhoe back in the 1950s. But not, so this, this haplotype was spreading through the population, but a, only part of those haplotypes actually carry the mutation because it occurred later on. So it's really difficult to develop a haplotype for this at this point. And so what would happen is if we used a haplotype test, there would be a lot of false positives mm. because it would be, so this was, you know, there was a, a chunk of the genome that Ivanhoe spread to a lot of the animals in our population. That chunk of the genome was mutated in one key ancestor in the 1980s, it appears. So a lot of animals have that chunk of the genome that's perfectly normal and then another subset of animals have that chunk of the genome with the mutation in there. And so it's really hard to determine, did you get the chunk of the genome from the, from the normal side of the pedigree or did you get it from an ancestor that had the mutation? And so, so at this point we have to rely on the direct genetic test and that's now available. In terms of producers, commercial producers at this point all the bull studs are they're testing all of their bulls for this condition and so there's nothing you can do about matings that have already been made but going forward certainly you can make sure you're using bulls that don't carry this condition uh, now some bulls that carry this condition are really good bulls otherwise and you might still want to use those bulls in that case it would be prudent to do some some testing of your females to make sure that you want to mate this bull too to make sure they don't carry it and then that way you can avoid creating calves that have two copies of the mutation. That's a great tool to have, yeah, for sure. And I know maybe this is not something that has been thought about yet, and obviously your research is in Holstein's. Is there any concern or thought that maybe this could pop up in other breeds as well? Yeah, so... Certainly we know that uh, other breeds, you know, our breeds do have upgrading programs where, where crossbreds can eventually be upgraded and then enter into their breed registry. My kids show Jersey cows that all trace back to a Holstein cow that my dad had on his farm a couple decades ago. So, uh, so, so the short answer is that yes, and it is possible for this to occur in other breeds. We don't have evidence of that yet, so I'm, I'm not, I think it's probably unlikely, 
but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that this will migrate into a couple bloodlines and some other breeds as well. But we won't know that. I don't know. I, I suspect that some of the bull studs have probably tested some of their Jersey sires, for instance, just to, just to kind of make sure. Uh, I, I'm speculating on that point. I, w I would guess that's happened. But, uh, but because we have the test, it would be pretty easy to test to eliminate sires and those other breeds as well and i've not seen any evidence that they carry it at this point absolutely good so to kind of wrap up here what action would you encourage farmers to take if they have a calf that develops this condition on their farm and and what can producers do to help kind of limit the spread yeah so the good news is that some of these calves with a lot of help do seem like they can recover uh, but it, it in some cases it can take a lot of work with getting those calves lifting them up on their feet every day and, and turning them over and just really kind of have to to nurse them along and it, it may take a few months for them to recover and in some cases people have done that and the calf just doesn't ever recover and we all know that with cattle if they're down and they can't get up they're prone to developing secondary infections and and really pneumonia ends up happening with some of these calves and they have to be euthanized because of that. So in a lot of cases, these calves are going to end up being euthanized, unfortunately. Uh, some can recover. If it's a valuable animal, an animal that you really want to work with, uh, you, can, you can work with them and, and then hope and pray for the, the best. But uh, generally speaking, the main thing at this point is to make sure that we're using, we're, we're we're conducting matings that are not going to create a situation where we have two copies of this particular gene. So using sires that are tested free of the condition will prevent this going forward. Or if we have a really good bull that we want to use, making sure we mate him to cows that are tested free of this condition will help us to avoid that. And I do think the good news is that now that we have this genetic test, the frequency of this, it's, it's already, it's, you know, not at a real high frequency, and I think it's going to drop pretty quickly. And so that's that's the great thing. And I guess the other thing that I would say is that you know, if you experience some oddball events like this, uh, reach out to your breed association or to your genetics company or to somebody at your university like me and mention this and take a take a hair sample from that calf and from one of its relatives and just send it to them. And then, and, and then if uh, other people are starting to observe this, they can kind of put their ear to the ground a little bit and, and we can make sure that we're finding these things before they become a really big problem. Thanks. Yeah, that's really good advice for, for any condition and especially one, one as new as this one. And we appreciate your research on it and glad to hear that the prevalence is hopefully going to go down as well. So, um, yeah, really appreciate your insight here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We also want to again thank Phoenix Bio for their sponsorship of this episode. To learn more about Phoenix Bio, visit their website at phoenixbio.com. It's F-E-A-N-I-X-B-I-O.com. Phoenix Bio has simple, easy, and affordable genetic testing. Thank you again to everyone for joining us on this episode. You can find our other Heard It Here episodes on our website at hordes.com or your favorite podcast streaming platform. 
We hope you'll join us again soon.